Hello and welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 141. It's also July the 7th, which means that it's 7-7, whether you use the UK way of saying months and days or the US way. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another warm week here, with the only rain this week coming halfway through a 15-mile hike. Having said that, the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh, got a month's rain in an hour, so I'm glad I wasn't walking there. Of course, my son left his favourite toy on a bench during the walk, which meant an extra three miles for me. But it was still a good day as things move a bit closer to normal. Just being able to travel again, even if it's only within the country, is still pretty cool. Now school's out, I'm having to sit through YouTube videos at the moment, so that's been interesting. The latest binge watch in the living room is Chadtronic. I've also noticed the latest gadget craze for kids is called Push Poppers, which all the kids in the park seem to have, and which seem pretty dull to me, but what do I know? I still remember clackers, which caused many a broken arm in the 1970s. I checked on eBay and the original ones, not the modern light plastic ones that aren't dangerous at all, they're going for lots of money. I wish I still had mine, but I suspect that when the school banned them, my parents probably accidentally lost them around the same time. I think Santa would get sued if he brought dangerous toys like that now. No doubt there is some kind of health scare on push poppers as well, whether it's carpal tunnel syndrome or something like that, other than, of course, the amount of plastic that it needs to make them. Speaking of which, I see Lego is experimenting with recycled plastic for its bricks. If they need extra Lego, they can give me a call. We could build a three-bedroom extension, the amount of Lego in our house. Let's move on to the podcast. This week we have conversations with Christy Saitama, Vice President, Global Ingredients Marketing, and Terry Rexrote, Vice President, Ingredient Marketing at the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Anne-Marie Splitstone, Senior Vice President, Global Innovation Partnerships at Dairy Management Inc. And with Systems Business Development Manager at IFF, Linda Donning. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. And I also want to remind you we have a live webinar coming up on July the 29th on Dairy Alternatives, which is coming up very soon. So please check out the website for more details. So now it's time for our weekly look at the news from the past seven days. The IDF has published new guidance on the microbiological quality of raw milk. We had an article called Are Cows the New Coal? NZMP is expanding its probiotic applications for the North American market. And a survey shows UK consumers want food wrapped in compostable packaging. Dairy Gold is going to build a new protein and butter plant in Washington State. Techniplex is acquiring Grupo Phoenix. Hochwald issued its 2020 financials. And we had the July 2021 update from Maxim Foods. Gelato is growing into new markets. Saputo is taking over UK cheesemaker Wensleydale dairy products in my home county of Yorkshire. And Ornua Ingredients Europe secured a long-term partnership with Ames International. Hawaii's Department of Health is clamping down on raw goat milk. InBios has applied for FDA approval for four new fermentation-produced HMOs, and you can read all of these and many more at DairyReporter.com. So let's get to this week's interviews. 
A new infographic unveiled by the U.S. Dairy Export Council shows a record 7,409 whey protein products were introduced around the world in 2020, with annual launches nearly doubling from 2015. To break it down and tell us what that means for U.S. dairy are Christy Saitama, Vice President, Global Ingredients Marketing, and Terry Rexrote, Vice President, Ingredient Marketing at the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And it is Christy who we will hear from first. I guess to kick things off, I wonder if we could start with the data, and I wonder what your data on whey protein and milk protein products are showing. Thank you, Jim, for this forum today to share with your listeners insights from a custom tracking analysis of Innova Market Insights new product introduction data. There are three key takeaways, all signaling that formulators really are tapping into dairy proteins to fuel their innovations. So first, the analysis revealed that the number of new food and beverage product introductions globally made with whey and milk proteins both smashed prior year records in 2020 and remain on a strong growth trajectory. Second, this robust whey protein launch activity is occurring globally, not just in Western markets like the United States and Europe, but also in other regions too, like Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. And third, the number of dairy protein introductions outpaced plant proteins in 2020, maintaining a leadership position held for the past decade. So, when you combine the data for 70 types of different plant protein ingredients, so that's a lot of them, with dairy protein ingredients in aggregate, there were over 3,000 more dairy protein products than plant protein introductions last year. What kind of consumer needs and trends are being met by all of these launches? Really, it's health and wellness at the core, especially that trend in rising consumer awareness and consumer interest and consuming protein-boosted products as part of a healthy and active lifestyle. We found that 60% of the tracked new whey protein launches and 28% of the milk protein launches in 2020 had claims of being either a high or a source of protein, so really demonstrating protein's strong marketing appeal. But protein products can't just be healthy. They also have to taste good and fit into the mainstream foods that consumers eat as part of their daily dietary habit. And that's where the dairy proteins really shine in terms of providing a nutritional boost without compromising taste or texture. And what kind of products are being launched in this area with these proteins? And and is it globally? And are there any differences? Um, Category-wise, the analysis revealed that sports nutrition and then baby and toddler products with the top two categories together accounting for about two-thirds of the whey protein launch activity last year. The data also showed that the remaining one-third of launches were really quite diverse, such as in dairy foods, cereals, bakeries, desserts, and ice cream, snacks, and more. So this really reinforces that versatility of whey proteins as a nutritional and functional ingredient solution in wide-ranging applications. To your question about where is it, it really is global. It's a global trend. And the top five markets, though, accounted for 40% of the launch activity. And in order, the top five markets were the United States, China, Germany, the United Kingdom, and Brazil. And a third of the new product launches last year were outside North America and Europe, with one in five in Asia and 8% in Latin America. And are you seeing differences 
in the kinds of products in those different markets? Because clearly they're all quite different. Yeah, definitely. Consumers around the world have really different food, taste, and texture preferences, and that's being reflected in the products marketed to them. But however, the regional variations we're seeing are additionally a reflection of where the countries are in the adoption curve of consuming higher protein foods for health and wellness. So for example, sports nutrition, um, which is one of the areas where whey protein use has been you know, widely recognized for decades, can often be the initial entry point for the usage adoption. But demographic trends also are another thing that really matters. So for example, when we compare launch activity in two markets, let's take Vietnam and Japan examples, both uh, set new records in 2020, both in Asia. But Vietnam has a very young population, about 30% of the population's under 20. So the majority of the new products launches there were tracked in the baby and toddler category. So in contrast, in a rapidly aging Japan, where about 28% of the population is over 65, we see the greater launches in mainstream food options to fit everyday consumer needs for health and wellness. For example, products like protein snacks or beverages or yogurt or like squeezable jelly. Then about 43% of the product launches uh, for whey protein in Japan carried a high or source of protein claim, again, taking advantage of protein's marketing appeal. And you mentioned how strong the number of launches is do you anticipate that that's going to continue or do you think it will sort of continue in some countries and grow more in other countries that haven't seen that growth yet? Thanks, Jim. I'll be happy to take that question. And yes, undoubtedly, we expect this growth rate can continue. The market responds to strong products with a strong message. And, you know, really, that's what dairy proteins embody. Whey and milk proteins are recognized for their unparalleled nutrition excellent functionality, as well as mild flavor, which makes them the undisputed gold standard among all food proteins. Because these characteristics are inherent to dairy proteins, they don't need to be, let's say, quote unquote, fixed before they can be easily incorporated into foods and beverages that meet consumer demands and market trends. And in addition, when dairy proteins are are manufactured, they're separated from the other components of fluid milk, such as the milk fat, the lactose, minerals like calcium, The primary separation methods are gentle physical filtration processes that um, separate the components based on physical size using primarily water, and they don't generally require the addition of processing aids such as solvents, acids, caustic agents. So not only does this save time and money by eliminating the need for added ingredients and processing steps, but it also gives dairy proteins a cleaner label than many proteins from other sources. So it's a win-win, really, as it benefits both food processors and consumers. You mentioning, I know Christy mentioning about those five markets with the most launches. Do you see other countries are going to have faster growth rates than those five countries? Yeah, good question. I mean, there's certainly an adoption curve that varies around the world, but we anticipate that the sports nutrition market is going to continue to grow globally in really, you know, most countries. And the reason for this is largely because the audience for sports nutrition products has just greatly expanded over the years because it's really broadly understood the benefits are not just for serious athletes, but for everyday health and fitness conscious consumers, which is just more and more of the population. Um, Active consumers around the globe are increasingly interested in improving health and fitness, and they really do more and more recognize the role of their diet in achieving these goals. 
So countries beyond the U.S. and the EU that have not traditionally been thought of as key sports nutrition markets, uh, such as Brazil, which Christy mentioned. And another example is the UAE. They have rapidly growing sports nutrition sectors. And this is extremely positive for high quality U.S. dairy proteins. But for fitness minded consumers, I also want to mention that, you know, the message is more about than just buying jugs of protein powder. So dairy proteins are easily incorporated into a wide range of healthy prepared foods, many of which are perfectly suited for sports nutrition minded consumers. And you mentioned as well the fact that sports nutrition is the dominant category here. Do you expect that that balance will also change because there are things like healthy aging, medical nutrition that weren't in the stats? Um, I'll take that one, Jim. Um, Yes, I think um, overall, over time, we're going to see more and more shift to mainstream products beyond sports nutrition and their toddler products. So those will grow, but the other categories will also grow as people realize more innovation potential beyond some of those original categories. But for healthy aging and medical nutrition, maybe I can clarify a little bit there. Healthy aging food and beverages actually are captured in the data. It's more like a nuance of how the products are categorized because healthy aging spans multiple use categories rather than being a discrete category. So for instance, a consumer that wants to have a healthy aging lifestyle, they can boost um, their protein intake or dairy protein intake through maybe selecting Greek style yogurt or protein smoothie for breakfast or protein cookies or chips as an afternoon treat or kind of my weakness, protein ice cream for dessert. So they can get it through what's tracked in other categories. For your question more on the medical nutrition, it's really it was a matter of simplicity and ease of apples to apples comparison that we focused the data set specifically on analyzing the mainstream food and beverage category, so excluding the medical nutrition and supplements. But it is worth noting that when we do broaden the track new product count to include medical nutrition and supplements, the data does reveal a very similar trajectory. So specifically, the number of global whey protein introductions in totality, so food and beverage, plus medical nutrition, plus supplements, jumps by another almost 500 products and also setting a new record in 2020. Lots of records being broken with lots of new products. How do you communicate to producers of these products about the ingredients and the benefits of these ingredients? In our experience, we find that really one size doesn't fit all. We have to tailor our messages to the conditions of the specific markets or the audience segments to be really relevant to their unique needs and circumstances. For example, we share local friendly product prototypes with the formulators to spark and accelerate the ideation and innovation process to really pave the way to bring new concepts from idea to commercial reality. But if I were to generalize, it's probably a continuum. So really, we have to educate first on why protein is important for health and wellness across the life stages, and then why dairy protein in particular stands out nutritionally from other alternative protein sources and based on published scientific evidence. And then thirdly, why U.S. origin dairy protein is ideally suited for food and beverage manufacturers' product innovation needs. When it comes to those companies, how do you help them to incorporate the ingredients into finished products? Jim, first, I'd like to expand a little bit on Christy's comment about the life stages, specifically with regard to healthy aging, because this is where dairy proteins can really contribute to quality of life. 
So longer lifespans around the world mean that the number of aging adults is growing globally. Um, and Christy cited a country like Japan specifically, but this applies in uh, many countries around the world. And it's important for these aging populations to understand that the benefits of consuming protein are, are not just for younger people or athletes. So we focus on communicating that consuming high quality dairy proteins can help mitigate the gradual loss of muscle mass and muscle function known as sarcopenia that occurs with aging. A lot of people are surprised to find out that this starts around age 40. So sarcopenia can interfere with an individual's ability to perform their daily activities. And, you know, even though it seems like a simple thing, it can really reduce quality of life. Consuming adequate quantities of high quality dairy proteins throughout the day, such as 30 grams per meal, can help support muscle health and preserve muscle mass in adults of all ages. And really, the good news is it's just never too late to get started. When it comes to communicating things like that, do you rely on the companies that are putting out the products or do you have a public outreach where you communicate that to the general public? Yeah, I would say it's really some of both. We're a membership organization and our members processors of these dairy proteins. And so, of course, they have their own marketing programs. But USDAC as well conducts marketing programs um, around the world, across Asia, the Middle East and North Africa and Latin America as well to enhance the food and beverage processors understanding of these benefits in formulating with U.S. dairy proteins. So we work, you know, let's say hand in hand with U.S. dairy processors to get these messages out. Because really, first and foremost, I would say it's important that the food processors understand how to properly use the dairy ingredients so they get the maximum benefit. So one thing that we do quite a bit of is we conduct hands-on training workshops in the export markets. And these are led by industry experts to show people how to use the dairy proteins. It's not like it's really hard, but there are specific steps to really maximize the benefit. And we want to make sure that people understand so that they are frustrated when things don't work. We also provide information on product and market trends, on nutrition. We support companies on new product ideation and how they can grow their portfolios. And there are really many ways, besides the workshops that I mentioned, there are many other ways to communicate this information to food processors, seminars, webinars. We exhibit at a lot of trade shows, when trade shows happen, that is, before the pandemic. One-to-one meetings between the dairy ingredient processors and the export customers. Social media campaigns. Of course, social media, really a growing method of communicating. And then, of course, podcasts like the one that we're doing here right now. Another thing that we like to do are trade missions of export customers to visit the U.S. These are really popular and they serve to provide the customers really a firsthand view into the U.S. dairy industry, including learning about dairy ingredient processor operations, sometimes visiting these operations, visiting and learning about dairy farms, and also participating in technical training opportunities that they can find in the U.S., but they may not be able to get in their home market. In addition, I want to mention that we have our in-market international offices are in all of these countries. So we have boots on the ground in all of these countries, and they're also available for daily support uh, to the customers in those regions in really any way that's necessary, any way that it will help get the U.S. dairy message out. And uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention a new jewel in our crown is the U.S. Center for Dairy Excellence, or the CDE, in Singapore, which is a learning destination, ideation hub, and collaboration space that has a state-of-the-art demonstration kitchen, sensory lab, classroom facilities, and video capabilities. So with the new U.S. CDE, it really opens exciting opportunities for both U.S. dairy exporters as well as for in-market customers to enhance their ability for 
long-term successful collaboration, because that's really what it's about, is the collaboration in just the increasingly challenging international food and beverage market. Okay, is there anything else that you wanted to add? At the risk of being redundant, we just really like to emphasize that dairy proteins offer unmatched nutrition benefits across all life stages, as well as strong functionality advantages to food and beverage processors. And I, I hope we've kind of gotten the message out that really all proteins are not created equal. And no other type of protein ingredient offers the specific range of quantifiable benefits, really, offered by highly functional, nutritious, minimally processed, mild-flavored U.S. dairy proteins. And also, um, I could add to that, um, we would like to invite your listeners to visit our website at thinkusadairy.org to find further information on what Terry and I talked about here today, including if they can download an infographic that really highlights more information about the data from Innova Market Insights on those new product tracking trends. And also, we also invite them to follow us on Think USA Dairy for LinkedIn and Twitter to stay connected on trends and innovation opportunities with US Dairy. Next, it's over to Anne-Marie Splitstone, Senior Vice President of Global Innovation Partnerships at Dairy Management, Inc., about a partnership DMI has entered into with Alamar Foods Company, which owns 455 Domino's stores in the Middle East, North Africa, and Pakistan. The goal is to boost dairy sales, and in this case, cheese sales for pizzas. Let's find out more. I guess the first question would be really a little bit of background in terms of what you do and your role in DMI and Checkoff. Sure. Well, I obviously work for DMI and that is the Dairy Checkoff Program. And specifically, I work in global innovation partnerships. So I work with big food service and dairy co-op groups to get the dairy sales message out, get the trust and grow sales internationally as well as here in the U.S. And specifically, I manage partners like Domino's Pizza, which I know we're here to talk about today. Has that been something that's been ongoing or has it become more prominent working with the big companies to try and promote dairy within those companies? That's an interesting question. About a decade ago, DMI, which had historically reached consumers and talked about dairy via advertising, sort of reassessed the effectiveness of that and decided to make a strategic shift to partnerships, specifically big global partners that had similar ways of working, similar ways of approaching consumers and a love of dairy. And partners like McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, KFC, and uh, Domino's were some of the big players that we partnered with who have a lot of access internationally as well as strong presence here in the U.S and are big proponents of dairy and cheese specifically in most cases. So they were great ways to reach consumers in a different way and really partnering with them, both in their marketing efforts to get the message out, but also with a lot of our technical and science expertise for product innovation and obviously products which had a lot of cheese and dairy in them. So it was a great change and we've seen incredible results. Actually in the last decade, those partnerships have yielded over 2 billion in fluid milk equivalent growth which is the way we track it. So the partnerships we deem to be very successful in driving dairy sales. That's on a global basis. You work with all of these companies to sell in all of their markets? Well, we kind of vary. So we work with them in the U.S. first, and that's sort of where we built these partnerships. And then in 2017, 
we first took our foray into the international market. So we started with the young businesses. I think you're familiar with them. They have Taco Bell, they have Pizza Hut. And so we tested the international waters with Pizza Hut in Asia and then with Taco Bell in Mexico. So we started with certain markets that seemed appropriate. And actually, we understood the importance of getting internationally and the opportunity there because we know that 96% of consumers are actually outside the U.S. So we needed to tap in and the farmers really understood that. And so they established a sister group of ours, which is called USDEC or uh, the U.S. Dairy Export Council. And so they were out understanding the international markets. And really, we partner with them and work together to determine what markets make the most sense. So we have the relationship with the partners in the U.S. And then USDEC understands where their biggest potential is. They understand all the regulatory challenges, et cetera. So we don't necessarily go everywhere our partners are. We make strategic choices where we think the biggest opportunity exists. And with working with USDEC, it's kind of hand in glove. We figure out what the right markets are with the right partners. And that's where we establish things. So as I mentioned, we started with Pizza Hut and now we expanded to Domino's in 2019. We went into Japan. And then very recently, we are going to expand with Domino's into the Middle East. So we really look at where the potential is, where we see a lot of upside. Um, and those are markets that do that for us. And when you look at the companies, you automatically with McDonald's, Domino's, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, you instantly think cheese. But clearly you've done things that are beyond cheese. So coming up with innovative products, I noticed recently there was a drink at Taco Bell. So it's not just cheese that you're working with. Absolutely not. We look where we can get dairy in general. So um, in McDonald's, we have done McFlurries beverages. Um, as you mentioned, we recently partnered with Taco Bell for a frozen dairy beverage, um, which is doing really well. So it is not only cheese. Cheese is an obvious place. Obviously, when we're talking to a pizza franchise, we're going to talk cheese. But when we're talking to other partners like McDonald's and Taco Bell, um, there are opportunities beyond cheese. And so dairy beverages are very appealing and growing and have done really well. So we'll look at what the best opportunity is specific to the franchise and specific to the market. I mean, you need to understand what's going on, what the palettes are there, what's going to be appealing to those consumers and then bring it to them. So that's where the innovation part of our partnership goes. And I suspect that this isn't the end of it. You don't just say, well, okay, we've got these four big companies and that's where it ends. I assume that you're constantly trying to grow that. Absolutely. We are constantly looking for what is the best way to drive sales for dairy and bring the trust message out. So we're understanding where consumer dynamics are changing. What are the partners that would make the most sense? And so we have partners outside of food service. Obviously, we partner with our dairy co-ops, but we also partner with different groups, some of which I can't mention today, but we'll soon be talking about where we're reaching consumers in different spaces. Some of partnering with them on, on health issues and how all the essential vitamins and dairy can bring great nutrition to consumers. So it's not limited even to food service. We're looking at what's the best place to partner. We partner with Amazon and helping them understand the power of dairy and, and how to reach consumers on dairy. So they're doing a wealth of products. And so it's more of you know an e-commerce channel. We're constantly reassessing and looking for the right new partners. That doesn't mean we don't love the partners we have because we do, and they're doing great. But to your point, we need to keep going where consumers are going and understand what products they want and what they need. And in order to do that, we have to keep growing our partners. And we're doing that, looking all the time. 
you mentioned the 96% of the population living outside of the US, which is a great opportunity to grow in categories that aren't necessarily that well developed. There are still, I would suspect, untapped markets for what we've considered to be staple parts of the diet for decades. Absolutely. I mean, to your point, in the U.S., it is a staple. If I'm, you know, with my family, if I want, you know, hey, what am I going to make for dinner? Oh, let's just order a pizza. It's very second nature. It's a popular thing. It's very common. And it's about 16% of the total quick serve restaurant business here in the U.S. In contrast, that huge opportunity in markets like Japan, it's 1% of all of the quick serve restaurants. So huge upside. And internationally, the whole, it's about 8%. And that's what we see in a lot of the Middle Eastern markets, between 3 and 8%. So huge upside potential. But we know once we get there, and part of what we help our partners do is market their products to these consumers, build awareness, get the trial, in some cases, help with the value equation. Because some of the reason is we've gotten into these markets and really understood them is the different reasons why it's not a bigger percentage of the QSR business, why it's not a bigger usage for consumers. And for example, in Japan, consumers see it as a special occasion opportunity for them. So they're doing it infrequently. It's really important. They love it, but they don't do it more often. So that's part of the messaging we're helping. We work with our partners on value and we know it works. In Japan, for example, we worked with them on an innovation called the New Yorker one kilogram pizza. And as a cheese lover, I love this. If for you know the metrics, but some people don't, that's 2.2 pounds per pizza, which is about three times their normal large pizzas amount of cheese. So it is crust and cheese and just wonderful. And it's helped double the business in Japan since we started that partnership in 2019. So we know consumers want it. We just need to give them products they like. We also need to kind of adjust sometimes and understand what the toppings are. For example, in Japan with that pizza, you get a side of maple syrup or dried seaweed. Not necessarily so popular in the U.S. market, but it's hugely popular there. So it's also understanding what to bring them and help partner with them on things that make sense. And pizzas like that are doing great and they're growing a lot of U.S. cheese. And importantly, that's 100% U.S. mozzarella on those pizzas. So for the U.S. dairy farmers, that's a huge win. And we're very excited about it. And it keeps growing. They've done very well through the tough year and a year and a half that we've had the pandemic. So restaurants like Domino's are doing really well and they're a great partner. Very good for driving awareness and trial of pizza. The question of different tastes, is it something that you're trying to replicate or to try and promote the Western style pizzas that would have what we would normally have on toppings? Or is it trying to do that and stay faithful to the local flavors? It's kind of what you said. It's kind of a combination of the two. You obviously want to give consumers what they want, though we've seen over time the Western products are getting more popular. So a lot of them like to have the things they see on their pizza that they know people are having in the U.S. So pepperonis, peppers, those types of things are very popular there too. But we also offer for folks these other alternatives as well. So it's kind of the best of both. Interestingly, in markets like Japan and in the Middle East, a really popular pizza is the Quattro pizza, which is splitting it in four. So they love their toppings and they can have different toppings in the different portions of the pizza. It's kind of like we have half and half here in the U.S., but we don't have that many choices. So they kind of get, even within their pizza, a different option. You know, maybe someone in the house wants to have the crab or the seafood products on it and someone else wants a traditional pepperoni and green pepper. So they're allowed to do that all in one pizza. So they're kind of marrying it even in the offerings that they put out to consumers. 
and I guess Domino's would already have a pretty good grasp being a worldwide company of what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, for those of your listeners who don't know, they're the number one pizza company worldwide. They have 17,000 stores, 11,000 of them in their 90 plus international markets. So they absolutely know. And they put experts on the ground in those markets that know those consumers. And um, they also operate on a franchisee, master franchisee setup. So instead of in the U.S., for example, you might have a couple of mom and pops franchisees, or maybe they have 10 stores. In these markets, they kind of own the marketplace and they have hundreds of stores. So they really know um, what those consumers want. They have some latitude to obviously following the models of the domino uh, approach to doing the business, but optimizing it for their marketplace. So adding different ingredients or things like that, understanding what the challenges are, but they absolutely know their consumers very well. And that's what made them so successful. And that's what helps them help us drive dairy. So it's a great win-win. And I guess you're working with, I saw something about experimenting with a pizza rice bowl concept. What's that all about? We are, this is another place where they're marrying what's very popular in their marketplace with the heritage and the strength of Domino. So they're bringing a rice bowl concept, trying again to get this from a special occasion to a more frequent um, occasion for the consumers. And this is kind of a more easily eaten food. It's also better for single people, which there is a larger percentage of in, in Japan where they're doing this. So it fits with the lifestyle there, the consumer base there, and it allows them to have dominoes more often uh, during the course of a year. So it's just getting out into the marketplace. It launched in May, but it got great test results and we expect great things out of it. And uh, it has all the toppings. So there's a lot of cheese on the rice bowl. So it's a good combination of familiar product for the consumers in that market, but with all the great pizza toppings and cheese that they love about a Domino's pizza. I'm trying to picture what it would look like. Is it like pizza with rice on it or is it a bowl of rice with pizza on it's it? It's like rice with pizza toppings on top of it. So it's kind of it's kind of like the rice is taking the place of the crust. The main news recently has been that you've taken this and you've now got a partnership going in the Middle East. Could you tell me about the Middle East region and how that is working? Sure. Middle East was very appealing to us. As I mentioned, you know, we, we work with our partners at USDEC to figure out what are good markets and then good markets um, with our, our Domino's team. And the Middle East was really a win-win. It's a younger consumer base. It is highly employed, highly urban population, what makes it good for a Domino's location. And they love cheese. They might not eat as much cheese as you see in the U.S. where it's 37 pounds per capita a year, but it's in the 12 to 14 pounds a year. So this is a, a cheese-loving consumer base. They also love soft white cheeses like mozzarella, so it is a lot of upside potential as they start having pizza. So Middle East looked like a good market. Domino's has a relationship. Their master franchisee is Alamar Foods, um, and they have about 455 stores in the Middle East, Pakistan region. And then we're going to focus on Saudi Arabia and the UAE which is about 300 of their stores. That's where the biggest upside for us right now is. And so they'll be using U.S. cheese to make these pizzas. We're just getting started. It was just actually very recently approved. A lot of similar um, dynamics. And they're looking at, for example, a, another a version of the New Yorker pizza for their market. So there's a lot of interesting things that we can do with that marketplace. And Domino's has just been such a great partner that we know that we can have a good relationship. We talked to both the international folks as well as the franchisee to do what's best in that market. And uh, we're just getting started, but tons of 
upside potential, particularly uh, we think in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. They really love the Domino's product. They really love U.S. mozzarella cheese. So lots of exciting things, I think, to grow in that marketplace. And now we take a look at locust bean gum. It's used a lot in the dairy industry and for dairy alternatives, and of late, the price for it has been rising sharply. To tell us about locust bean gum, why prices are going up and what can be done about it, is Systems Business Development Manager Linda Dunning from IFF. People hear of the term locust bean gum, but as with many ingredients, it sounds familiar, but they're not really sure what it is. I wonder if you could give me a little bit of a rundown as to what locust bean gum is. Certainly. So locust bean gum is also known as carob bean gum. It is a natural hydrocolloid that is actually derived from a carob tree. And the carob tree is native to Morocco, Spain, Italy, and Portugal. So it's a relatively small region where it's coming from. It is a long-chain polymer that is made up of mannose and galactose sugars, and it's very well known for its water-holding capabilities, viscosifying properties, and synergies with xanthan and carrageenan. As far as where it's used in dairy applications, it's going to be in plant-based and dairy-based frozen desserts. In that application, locust bean gum is used to enhance the creaminess and mouthfeel of the product. It also helps to provide the heat shock protection during the distribution and storage of the frozen dessert. The other place that we're seeing most growth in for plant-based right now, the locust bean gum is being used in plant-based beverages to provide mouthfeel, and it also helps to meet the clean label requirements that's very important to this market currently. In the world of cultured dairy products, locust bean gum is not as common with the exception of cream cheese and cottage cheese. In cream cheese application, it's used to optimize the mouthfeel. It helps provide a smooth texture and prevents cineresis. On the cottage cheese side, it's actually used in the dressing of the cottage cheese, where the locust bean gum is then used to control cineresis and help improve the cling to the curd so you don't get the way off in a runny product. And you mentioned that very narrow band of distribution for where it comes from. Are there ever any issues with supply, with it being so such a tight region that it comes from? Because obviously with some crops, you can have devastation in Scandinavia, but it can be made up from other places in the world. Are there ever any issues? It is definitely a narrow range. The crop is very dependent on the weather conditions every year. And typically you don't have the same weather conditions exactly all of those same places. So there are sometimes you'll have a strong crop in one region and a weaker crop in another region. As I mentioned at the beginning there, locust bean gum, it's a familiar name, but how much do consumers know about it? It's a very common product and seen quite often on the labels. So consumers are very comfortable with locust bean gum and they have a very positive perception of it. The great thing about locust bean gum is that it is minimally processed and it's natural. So it's really ideally suited for people looking for clean label, natural or non-GM type of claims. Um, there are also versions of locust bean gum that are organic, so there's a product available out there to meet the organic needs. And are there any challenges to using locust bean gum, and, and what are the benefits of using it? I'd say there's two sides of the benefits. One is on the marketing side, and the other is on the functionality piece. So if you look at the marketing point of view, locust bean gum has the advantage because it hits many of the current trends today, such as natural, clean label, non-GM, and organic. And then from a functionality standpoint, I just really like locust bean gum. 
because it does meet those marketing needs, but it also meets the benefits in processing to deliver the desired finished product. Locust Bean Gum gives a very clean viscosity. And when I say clean, I mean that it's a very smooth type of texture and mouthfeel. It's not lumpy. It's just smooth kind of flow to it. It's water binding capabilities help ice crystal control. It can help control viscosity and help control synergesis. So it has a lot of functional benefits in the end. As for the synergies with carrageen and xanthan, this can play to the developer's advantage, but it can also cause a lot of problems if it's not controlled correctly. If it's used correctly, it can really control and drive unique features such as texture and functionality. However, because it can gel easily with these ingredients, it can be a problem in processing and can create some shelf life challenges that could result in some undesirable textural characteristics. I heard that there were some pricing issues at times with locust bean gum in spite of crop yields. What's driving that price increase? Going back to the kind of consumer perception, it has a very clean label perception, and there's been a huge growth in this area. So the demand for locust bean gum has increased significantly over the last few years. If you take that and combine it with the fact that over a number of years now, we've had below average to average crops. So now we're in a situation where there's very little carryover of the kernel, which is used to make the locust bean gum. And this is now creating unbalanced supply to meet the demand. And how do you fix that? Is there a fix for that? Short term and long term, there's two fixes. Unlike guar gum, it is not an annual crop. And so to increase the availability of locust bean gum, regardless of demand, it takes about seven years from the time you plant a carob tree until the time you actually can produce pods that can be used for the locust bean gum production. And it takes almost 15 years for that tree to become fully mature. So as a result, there is not an easy fix to just plant more trees and all of a sudden have more locust bean gum. So what we have to do then from IFF is we're looking at alternative solutions and how do we help our customers reformulate to improve the security of supply and still meet their marketing needs and the functional needs of the locust bean gum. And so how do you how are you working with your customers to address it? Yeah, oh lots of ways. <laughs> People ask, you know, do you have a locust bean gum replacement? And the answer is probably no, from the standpoint that there's simply not a one size fits all solution or alternative to locust bean gum. We have to take into account a lot of different factors. The first one IFF will look at is what are the marketing needs and the positioning of the product. So do we need to consider ingredients that are non-GM or organic? And if they need clean label, what is their definition of clean label? And once we have that information, we can then start to look at what ingredients are available to mimic the functionality that the locust bean gum was driving. We will take into account the other ingredients that are also in the product, and we can then start to formulate new products and offer those to our customers. Very often, when we're looking at other ingredients to replace locust bean gum, we need to understand how they work synergistically to actually recreate the functionality of the locust bean gum. And then we take all these factors into account, and very often our innovation team will offer a Grinstead system blend that is designed with an optimal ratio of ingredients to mimic the functionality driven by the LBG. I'll give a couple examples. For frozen desserts, we very often look at tarragum and guar gum to help replicate that mouthfeel. And for plant-based beverages, we have solutions such as tarragum and or xanthan blends that can help recreate the mouthfeel characteristics that are needed in the um, stability of the product. 
with dairy alternatives, you've got so many different kinds of bases for the plant-based alternative products. Does that create issues as well? Yes, when we look at dairy-based versus plant alternative, it could dictate which ingredients we need to use or limit the use of. For example, the plant-based products tend to be very focused on clean label, and therefore we need to select ingredients that align with clean label for our consumers. Now, the challenge we run into is that customers have different understanding and definition of clean label. So we have to clarify that with them prior to starting the development then the application team can really work with the customer to develop a product to meet their needs from a processing and a finished product standpoint. So you can pretty much work with your customers from the beginning phase right through to getting the product on shelf then? Yes, very much. And we have a lot of experience this, particularly with locust bean gum. When you look back over the last 30 years, there have been multiple spikes and challenges that have created imbalances in supply of locust bean gum. And being a leader, not only in locust bean gum, but also in hydrocolloids, you know, IFF has a vast experience in helping customers through these very trying times. One of the challenges that we face with our customers during these times is that customers are worried about changes that can negatively impact the quality of their product and their customer satisfaction. And there's also a time and resource factor that's needed here when we're looking at testing alternatives and qualifying alternative solutions. But IFF is very well suited to help with that and minimize those obstacles, given our ingredient knowledge, product knowledge, and processing know-how. So you must have lots of labs in order to be able to test all of these products. Do you do the testing at the customer's facility or at your own? Oh, we do both. So typically we will start at our own facility where our innovation team has access to not only the IFF ingredients, but also to many external ingredients, which we use in our systems blends. Given that access, they have an enormous range of functional ingredients to help meet the customer's needs. And very often our team will then create a blend so that they can do that. For most of our application areas, IFF has pilot plants that are specifically designed to mimic the manufacturing conditions of our customers. And there's a few advantages to this. The first one being that it allows for very easy scale up. So when we bring a solution to a customer, they have a high degree of confidence that what they're tasting is going to be representative of what they will produce on their equipment. It also is an advantage from the standpoint that we've done kind of the the trial and error part to narrow down the offering that we want to give to them. And so that can help speed up their processing time and development time. And it can also help reduce the number of trials that they need to run, which then can expedite product development, limit production trials, and it also helps to reduce the risk and lots of frustration that can be involved with scale-up challenges. And what about Costs, obviously, everybody's manufacturers are trying to keep costs down as much as they can so they don't have to pass on increasing costs to the the end consumer. How do you address that with them? Well, costs can be from many factors. It can be the cost of the ingredient itself, but can also be the cost of the overall formulation. So very often, IFF team is involved in evaluating their entire formulation, not just offering a single ingredient. So we can help optimize their other ingredients to reduce costs, and we can also look at the solution that we deliver to them to meet their cost targets. And you're a global company, so you can do this on a region-by-region basis as well? Yes, and it's very important to do it regionally because there are different market needs as well as processing conditions. So we need to ensure that we're looking at the 
regions when we're developing those products. So and the other advantage we have by being global is that when we do see trends or we even have experiences like this, um, where we're trying to either reduce or to provide LBG-free solutions, we can leverage the knowledge from the other regions. And that's also true with trends. As we see a trend, say, in Europe, and then we see that trend come to the U.S., we can reach out to our European colleagues and ask and understand what they've done to meet that trend and allows us then to bring a solution much faster to our regional customers. And now it's over to Ireland for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton at StoneX. Prices on the European dairy futures market have been uh, softer overall on the week, which has been pretty much in line with what we've seen on the GDT this week, which was down 3.6% overall. Skim milk powder was down around 7% and butter was down around 3.2% on the GDT. So here in Europe, we've had quarter three butter trading around 39.50 level, which is down around 40, 45 euros in the week. Quarter four has been trading at around the same level as well, 39.50, which is off around 35 euros on the week. And um, we've had uh, quarter one of 22 also trading pretty much on a flat curve around the 39.50 level, which is down around 45 euros on the week. Skimmel powder has been uh, lower as well, trading around in quarter three, trading around a 24.90 level, which is off around 20 euros in the week. Quarter four has been trading lower at 24.70 which is off around 30, 35 euros since last week. And quarter one of 22 has been trading around the 24.90 level, also lower by around 30, 35 euros from last week. Whey has uh, continued to be stable, trading around 1,000 euros. Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week. StoneX provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for this week's show. Next time, if the editing goes according to plan, we will have interviews with Danone about their site in Brazil. We'll also talk cheese made from fermentation, and I'm not quite sure of the third one yet. I have a couple to choose from, so I'll make that decision a bit closer to the time. So I will leave it there and go and see what episode my son has made it to while drawing maps of every country on the planet. And whichever of those countries you may be in, I hope that you have a great week. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.